Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, Shabbat Shalom. We're in a series on the Gospel of Mark. If I'm counting correctly, today is part 16, and we're not even halfway through yet. <laughs> We're going to look today at Yeshua's view of the scriptures and tradition. So turn with me to Mark chapter 7, Mark 7, uh, uh, beginning in the first 13 verses. Mark 7, beginning in verse 1, and we have it on the overhead as well. The Perashim, the Pharisees, and some of the Torah teachers who had come down from Jerusalem, gathered around Yeshua and saw some of his disciples eating bread with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and Torah teachers asked Yeshua, Why don't your Talmudim, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating with bread, they're bread with defiled hands. He replied, Yeshiyahu, Isaiah, was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. If Moshe said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares what might have been used to help your father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. Wow. This passage highlights Yeshua's view of the scriptures. Uh, And this text tells us three things uh, about the Bible and and Yeshua's relationship to it on the overhead. These three things. Number one, we must adjust to the authority of the Bible. Number two, we must grasp its purpose. And number three, we must come to fall in love with the person at its center. Amen. So first, we must adjust we must adjust ourselves to the authority of the scriptures. Uh, five times in this one passage, Yeshua criticizes what he calls the, quote, tradition of the elders. Now, Yeshua, of course, is not against all tradition. Uh, you can't even have a society or a culture or a, re- a religion without tradition, without ways of doing things, customs, rules. Uh, for example, what if we did not have the tradition that every Shabbat at 10.30 a.m. we meet here for worship? What if I said, you know, from now on, we might have services some weeks and we might not other weeks. And so the weeks that we do have it, it might be on a Saturday or Sunday or a Monday. And it might be at 10.30, it might be at 3 p.m., it might be at 6 p.m. You just have to check our website every week and, and figure it out. That would be chaos. <laughs> Almost everything we do is based on tradition. Our, our tour service, 
Our Torah reading, that's tradition. That's not laid down in the scripture. Uh, our liturgy, our music, uh, this drash, uh, the oneg, the afternoon Bible study. There's nothing in the scriptures expressly commanding all these specifics of what we do. It's tradition. And Yeshua himself followed and observed many Jewish traditions. You cannot have a life without tradition. You can't have a community without tradition. So Yeshua is not criticizing tradition per se. But he is criticizing many of the traditions of the elders. The traditions of the elders, what were they? They were a set of man-made rules and regulations uh, that over the years had grown up around the Bible. Adding details and fences Uh, Additional rules and regulations, traditions, practices, prohibitions, which over the year, uh, various Jewish sects, especially the Pharisees, tried to make binding and authoritative upon the people. These traditions of the elders over the year, they grew more and more elaborate. Uh, For example, there are over 10,000 prohibitions in the Talmud for what you can and cannot do on the Shabbat, for what they say constitutes work. For example, walking more than a certain number of feet from your home was prohibited, as was carrying anything in your pockets. Uh, Tearing toilet paper is prohibited, as well as opening your refrigerator door because it causes the refrigerator light to go on. But the rabbis also invented all sorts of loopholes, such as, for example, you could place objects from your home along a path, which permitted you to travel miles and miles and miles on Shabbat because the rabbis called this an extension of your home. And this was later expanded to have, they, they now tie string between telephone poles, which permits you to travel anywhere in the town where the strings are up. The prohibition on carrying was avoided if you simply tied it around your neck, like tied your house key around your neck. And, the, and uh, another huge tradition, addition, which was the, it actually is the subject of our passage today, was with respect to the ritual purity laws. The Torah requires the priests, the Kohanim, uh, to wash their hands and be ritually pure to perform their duties in the temple. Uh, and, to, and also before they can eat of the sacrifices. The rabbis later expanded this to require the same level of ritual purity for all the people, whether or not you were a priest, uh, and whether or not you were in the temple. And, and, and requiring them to ritually pour water over their hands, not a physical cleansing, uh, but a ceremonial purity before eating any food, not just the temple sacrifices. Uh, then they added the requirement, this same requirement whenever you return from the marketplace. Why? Because you may have bumped into a Gentile in the market and, and become defiled. Now, the main thing Yeshua is criticizing here is the religious establishment's attempt to make their man-made rules equal in authority to the scriptures and just as binding on the people. And because this plethora of rules, upon rules, upon rules, uh, were were much more detailed and much more specific than than the biblical laws, they tended to distract the people and encourage an obsession over this minutia uh, of outward rituals, uh, of external uh, traditions. In some cases, and in some cases, Yeshua discusses, for example, with the concept of korban, uh, to even contradict uh, the actual scriptures. Uh, and this leads to the two examples which Yeshua actually cites here in our passage. The first is, is washing. Uh, now, again, as I said, this was not about hygiene. Uh, this was not about physical cleansing. It was ritual washing for ceremonial purification. 
And as we mentioned in the Bible, the only people that were commanded to wash their hands were the kohanim, uh, the priests. Uh, they had to be ritually pure before they went into the temple to offer the sacrifices and to lead worship and before they could actually eat of the sacrifices. This was a way for the Lord to impress upon the people that if you want to approach me, you must be holy. Uh, your sin must be cleansed and dealt with. So this was a very important symbol because the priests represented the people. But as I mentioned, by the time of Yeshua, the traditions of the elders had evolved to require everyone to ritually wash uh, before eating anything. And then it was expanded further to the washing of clothes, the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles, the washing of furniture and couches. Even when there was no obvious contamination or contact with a corpse, for example. Why? Because you might have touched something or someone who was unclean. And so just to be sure, there was this obsession in the second temple period uh, with ritual purity. But think about this. The scriptures commanded Israel to be a light to the nations. And yet this basic principle was lost in all this legalism and separatism that came from all these multiplied rules on ritual purity and separatism and avoiding the Gentiles. How can you be a light to them if, you're, if you have to avoid them? Secondly, Yeshua brings up a second example having to do with Korban. The Bible, of course, says that God's claims supersede anyone else's claims. And the tradition of the elders used this to come up with a kind of loophole uh, because you could, have, you could take a piece of property and you can declare it korban, which means offered or, or offering. And you could say, I've offered, I've dedicated this property to God. And what this meant was if one of your relatives or even one of your own parents uh, got into trouble and they came to you as the kinsman, For help, you could say, well, I'd really love to help you, but I can't use any of this property. It's korban. It's devoted to God. Or you could say, uh, it passes to the temple upon my death, and so I can't give it away or use it for anybody else during my lifetime. And then Yeshua says, by by complying with this tradition of the elders, you've actually contradicted the whole spirit of the biblical principle and the biblical command to honor your father and mother. So in Mark seven thirteen on the overhead, uh, he says, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. Notice at the end of our passage, Yeshua says, And you do many things like that. He says, I could can, I can give you a hundred other illustrations like this, uh, but I won't. Now why is Yeshua so angry here? He rebukes the Pharisees and the Torah teachers. And he says this in Mark 7, verse 6. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. Yeshua is saying, if you fail to honor the unique authority of the Bible... You fail to worship God. On the overhead, if you let human traditions or you let what the experts say or or your own opinions, if you let anything else have equal authority with the Bible, you fail to worship God. If you do this, you actually are creating your own God. You are, in essence, your own God. So on the overhead, Yeshua was saying, 
the failure to recognize and honor the unique authority, the unique authority of the scriptures, of the written word of God, is a failure to honor the authority of God. The authority of the Bible and the authority of God stand or fall together. You cannot have one without the other. Yeshua clearly views the Bible as the unique word of God. And anyone who doesn't hold to this view, he says, is dishonoring God himself. Yeshua based all of his thinking, all of his actions, all of his heart on the scriptures. His mind, his will, his emotions. So for example, mind, thinking. Whenever Yeshua was confronted with a problem, a question, uh, or an intellectual or ethical issue, the final word for him was always kakatuf. It is written. It is written. And when he said that, it didn't matter what the experts said or, or what the culture said. It didn't matter what the tradition said. It didn't even matter what your own heart said. It was settled. So, for example, in John chapter 10, Yeshua says, the scriptures cannot be broken. And in Matthew 5, verse 18, Yeshua says, truly I tell you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not a jot or tittle will pass away from the law until everything is fulfilled. The jot, of course, was the smallest Hebrew letter, the yud, the yud, the yod. The tittle was a part of a letter. Yeshua based all his thinking on the Bible. It was his supreme authority intellectually. Secondly, he based his actions on the Bible, his plans, his decisions, his will. We see this, for example, in Matthew 26, in the garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers arrive to arrest him. Peter pulls out a sword to defend Yeshua. And what does Yeshua say in Matthew 26, 20, uh, 52? Put your, short, your sword back, Peter. Don't you think I could call my father to send 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? Even at his arrest, and in the midst of all this chaos... He based everything in his life on the scriptures. He did everything according to the scriptures. All his decisions, his plans, his actions. So there's mind, uh, there's will. But then uh, the most moving thing is to see that the main fortification of his heart were the scriptures. He handled the cosmic challenges of his life, not with sheer willpower, but with the word of God. So, for example, when he's tempted in the wilderness by Hasatan, every single time, what does he say? Kakatuv, it is written. Uh, and he rebukes Satan, according to Deuteronomy, according to the Torah, saying in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So on the overhead, Yeshua is saying, every word of scripture is my bread, my meat, my drink, my strength. My life. When he's carrying his own cross uh, to his execution, his life is, is literally ebbing out of him. Uh, and, and he falls down, and he looks up, and he sees some women uh, weeping. What does he say? You know, where do you get words at a, at a time like this? Uh, it's in Luke 23, he quotes them Hosea uh, about the green tree uh, and, and the dry tree. He quotes the scriptures. And then on the cross itself, when, when he's in the absolute greatest agony of his body, mind, and soul... He cries out, of course, Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, the, the crucifixion psalm. Uh, and then he says in Luke 23, 46, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. What is he doing? He's quoting Psalm 31. Even on the cross, in the throes of death, he's quoting the scriptures. Do you know what this means? 
You know, if you're plunging over a cliff and you see your death in the rocks below uh, and you cry out, what do you cry? Uh, or if someone is about to stab you with a knife and you see your death in the eyes of the assailant, what do you cry out? Well, one thing you don't do, you don't think, what should I say now? <laughs> what will people think? Uh, what are the expectations here? No, what, com- what comes out of you is whatever is in you. The real you. The real depths of your heart are revealed at a time like that. When Yeshua is at the absolute limit, uh, at the extremity, uh, his mind, his will, and his heart are so saturated with the truths, the narratives, the images, uh, the cadences, uh, the promises, uh, the warnings of the Bible, that when he was stabbed, he bled scripture. It just flowed out of him. He faced everything with scripture. His identity was based on the scripture. His life was based on the scripture. So here's the first point. Yeshua said, the authority of the God, the authority of God and the authority of the Bible stand or fall together. Well, in the, in the exact same way, the authority of Yeshua and the authority of the Bible stand or fall together. Now, there's all sorts of people who say, well, I'm interested in following Yeshua, uh, but the Bible, hmm, there's some parts I like, some parts I don't. There's some jots and tittles I like and some jots and tittles I don't like. There's some parts I consider regressive. Uh, I cannot accept. Now hear me well. You can't follow Yeshua and reject the very basis of his whole life. It doesn't work that way. You cannot pick and choose. Or else you're just inventing your own personal Yeshua. A Yeshua who doesn't exist. You've just created a fantasy world. Unless you're willing, like Yeshua, like Yeshua himself, to conform and adjust your life to the supreme authority of the scriptures in every detail, even when it hurts, even when you don't want to do it, unless you're willing to conform and adjust your life to the authority of the scriptures, especially the places where it contradicts your heart or contradicts your tradition or your culture or what the experts say or your friends, unless you're willing to do this, there is no way that you can follow Yeshua. So in the overhead, the authority of the Bible and the authority of God the Father and Yeshua, they all stand or fall together. That's point number one. You must adjust to the scripture's authority. Uh, On the overhead, point number two. You also have to grasp the purpose of the scriptures. You have to see what the Bible is for. Uh, What are we trying to accomplish when we obey the Bible? Now, quoting Isaiah, Yeshua says in Mark 7, verse 6, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They're teaching what rules taught by men. On the overhead, what is Yeshua saying? He's saying the purpose of the Bible is not mere formal compliance. He's saying, but I want your heart. I want your heart. He says, you're far from me. Your heart is far from me. I want to be close to you. Yeshua says, if you add all these extra rules and regulations to the Bible, that shows that, it shows that you think the purpose of the Bible is so that you can feel like you're an obedient, righteous person. And so you can say, God, you've got to bless me because I'm living such a good life. 
of following all the rules and regulations. But that, that is to completely miss, according to Isaiah, the whole purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is not to get God in a corner. Not to manipulate God, not to control him so that he's got to bless you and answer your prayers. No, on the overhead. It's not so you can feel righteous. No, the purpose of the Bible, as Yeshua is pointing out here, is, 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 uh, with his reference of wanting our hearts to be close to him, the purpose of the Bible is an intimate, close love relationship with God himself. God says, I don't want just your lip service. I want your heart. I want you to obey my word because I want intimacy with you. Now, the greatest illustration and demonstration of this principle, of the purpose of the Bible, is probably found in Shemot, Exodus 19 and 20. Now, of course, Exodus 20 is the famous Ten Commandments, God's will for how we should live. But where does God give the Ten Commandments? What's the context? Well, in Exodus 19, God brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says this to his people of Israel, Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You'll be my treasure. Notice that God didn't come to us in Egypt and say to us, if you obey my law, then I'll release you and I'll bring you out of slavery on eagle's wings. No, he didn't say, if you obey then I'll save you. No, just the opposite. He says, I saved you. I brought you out of slavery. I released you from the bondage of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. I saved you. You didn't do it. You didn't lift a weapon. It was all me. And I didn't do it because you were obedient, because frankly, you weren't obedient. I didn't do it because you obeyed the Torah. You you didn't even have the Torah yet. (laughs) I did it. Because I loved you. Sheer, unmerited grace. So why do I obey him then? Because God says, this is how you become my treasure. This is how you treasure me and I treasure you. This is how we can have an intimate relationship. You have, uh, you have to obey my will, the Lord says, if we're to have this incredible intimate relationship that I want with you. Now, to us modern Western people, obeying the law on the one hand and intimate personal relationship on the other, they don't seem to go together. In fact, they seem antithetical. But we're wrong. In fact, let me give you this example. If you really fall in love with someone, I mean really fall in love, and and you want a love relationship, what do you do? You start to do research. Oh, yes, you do. (laughs) You want to know, number one, what offends and outrages that person? And number two, what delights and pleases them? And you want to avoid the former and do the latter. You want to avoid anything that might offend them, right? And you want to know and do even the little things that delight them and make them happy. And what what are you doing? You're tracing out an ark. What is this ark? It's the will of your beloved. It's what your beloved wants. It's the will of your beloved. And once you found out the the things that offend them and the things that delight them, even the little things that delight them, and and without being asked, 
you begin to conform your life to the ark of your beloved. You begin to obey the will of your beloved. Now, why does this not feel like obedience? You don't think of it like that. Of course not. Uh, And here's why. When you fall in love with someone, you put your happiness into their happiness. You're only happy if they're happy. You can't help it. That's how love works. And it's not exploitation if it's it's mutual with both parties trying to please the other. It's not exploitation if the other person is likewise finding their happiness in your happiness. And tracing out the arc of your will. If the other person is likewise beginning to submit their will and adjust their life to the authority and love of the will of the beloved. And when you're both doing that, that is a true love relationship. But it's a problem if only one of you is doing this uh, and one of you is not. I don't know how many of you are old enough like me to have seen the original Star Treks uh, with Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner. Well, there was this one episode about a guy named Harry Mudd. Remember that one? (laughs) And Harry Mudd had a nagging wife. Just terrible, nagging wife. Uh, He's miserable. So he flees off to a planet where there's these thousands and thousands of robots. Nothing but robots. And they're all beautiful women. (laughs) Women robots. And he says, finally, paradise. (laughs) Because none of these beautiful women robots ever contradict him. (laughs) No matter what he says, he traces the arc of his will. And all they ever do is say, yes, dear. Yes, Lord Mud." Yes, dear. And then he even makes a robot of his wife. (laughs) And he pushes this button uh, to start it, and she begins to berate him. (laughs) Hardcore Fenton Mud, where have you been? (laughs) Is that alcohol I smell on your breath? (laughs) You good for nothing, louse? And he says, shut up, and he pushes the button, and she says, you, 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 you. (laughs) Paradise. Beautiful woman. A token, nagging wife, all under his complete control. (laughs) And when the crew of the Starship Enterprise gets to this planet, Harry Mudd is desperate to get off. He's absolutely miserable. Why? Because he does not have a single personal relationship. Because if you're in a relationship with another person who cannot contradict you, who can never contradict you, who only ever says, yes, dear, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear, anything you want, dear, that person is a subject, not, uh, I'm sorry, that person is not a subject, but an object. And there are marriages where one party is so traumatized and afraid of the other party that all they're ever able to do is say, yes, dear, yes, dear, and they can't contradict and they can't be honest. That's not a personal relationship. That's an exploitive relationship. And the person who's afraid to be honest and cannot contradict has been objectified. They're, a subje- they're, they're not a subject, uh, they're an object. Now, would you like a personal relationship with God himself? There's only one way. You've got to have a God who can contradict you who can contradict even some of the deepest convictions and feelings of your heart. Otherwise, if he can never contradict you, you do not have a personal relationship with this God. And if you say, 
well, I want a personal relationship with God, sure, but there's parts of the Bible I like and parts that I don't like. So I'm going to accept the parts I like and reject the parts I don't like. If you do this, you have no way then for God to contradict you. So what you've got is a robot God. You do not have the God of the Bible. You do not have the God, the God for example, of Job 38, uh, where bad things happen to him and on the overhead. Uh, he, and God says to Job in 38 verse 4, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth uh, and marked off its dimensions? You don't have that. Uh, uh, you've got a God who says, uh, Where were you, 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 you? <laughs> You've got a robot God. That's what you've got when you say there's parts of the Bible that I accept and parts that I reject. Unless you have a God who can contradict you, uh, you can't even have a conversation with him, let alone a relationship with him. He's not a personal God. He's not a person at all. He's an object. And here's what's tragic. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible you don't want to believe because you don't want to do it. But there's also all kinds of wonderful stuff in the Bible uh, that, it's hard to, that it's hard to believe because it seems too good to be true. The Bible says this in 1 John 3, verse 20. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. There are times when you feel like a failure. But the Lord says, through my grace, despite your failures, you can be my child. The Bible can give you hope. When your heart is hopeless. And the overhead. Yeshua promises you everlasting contentment and joy. Through a personal relationship with him. But you can't have a personal intimate relationship with God. Unless you're willing to submit and adjust your life. To the ark of God's will. And to the authority of his word. The Bible. And if you adjust your life to the authority of the scriptures. Out of love. Out of a desire to please him and to know him then you're understanding the whole purpose of the word of God. And the overhead. Religiosity says external compliance with the rules. But the gospel is an inner heart filled with love and joy that wants to passionately, wildly love God and love your neighbor. And the Bible is your roadmap for how to do that. Uh, and, and you go beyond just avoiding uh, what, what offends to doing what and wanting to do what delights the Lord. And the scriptures are what instruct you how to love the Lord and love others. Now here's the problem. If you honestly read the Bible and you actually see what, what it demands, it doesn't always fill you with joy and it doesn't always bring you close to God. But rather, sometimes it makes you feel guilty uh, and convicted because you see how far short you fall. I mentioned this in the past, but I can't get any greater example than this, so I'm going to mention it again. There was a college literature class at Texas A&M where this professor assigned the Sermon on the Mount as reading. Shockingly, most of this Texas A&M freshman literature class had never read the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and when they did read it, they were appalled. Here's some of the responses from some of the papers on the overhead. One, one paper, one person wrote, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It makes me feel like I have to be perfect, and no one is. <laughs> Here, now on the overhead, here's another, another essay. The things asked for in this sermon are absolutely absurd. Not to look at someone with lust, not to scorn or despise anyone, 
These are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I've ever heard. The point is, if you really read the Sermon on the Mount and take its exhortations seriously and see what it really requires, your most likely response will be, God save me from the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) It's not going to make you feel close to God. It's not going to make you have all these warm, fuzzy feelings of love and joy. So what do we do about these commands and exhortations and warnings? Here's what. The main reason the Pharisees were shocked by Yeshua is this. Remember what the traditions of the elders was. It was a way, it was a way for them to explain what the Bible means uh, and what the law requires. But when Yeshua was rebuking or disagreeing with some of these traditions... He was putting himself in this place. He was saying, I'll tell you what the Bible means. I'm the ultimate revealer of the Bible. You've heard it was said, but I say unto you, I am the final authority on the word of God. Now, how can Yeshua do this? This is what's so shocking to the Pharisees. Uh, How dare he? And here's how he dare. In the book of Luke, when Yeshua rises from the dead, he meets some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then later on, he meets some of the disciples in the upper room. And what does he immediately bring up? I mean, when you're, when you're back from the dead <laughs> and you're trying to get your followers ready for the rest of history, what do you say? And you know what he says both times? He says, it's imperative that you learn to read the Bible rightly. He says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, Luke 24, 25, how foolish and slow of heart you are to believe everything in the Bible. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and, and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And in the upper room, he says to the disciples, Luke 24, 44, this is what I told you when I was with, still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Yeshua says, the Bible will be an ultimate despair to you. Absolute despair. It will only crush you. It will not be a joy to you unless you learn how to read it. And what does he say is the secret to reading the scriptures on the overhead. Yeshua says, you must see there is a center to it. There's a plot line. There's a narrative arc running all through it. Yes, there's stories and laws and poetry and prophecy and history, but there is a central plot line running through all of it from beginning to end. And it all points to me. Unless you see that, The Bible will be nothing but a crushing burden. Now, how does this work? Here's two two quick examples. There's a great story in the Bible about the book of Joseph, which, by the way, we're studying currently in our afternoon Bible study. Joseph is sold by by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. The Lord raises him up out of the dungeon, out of the pit, uh, to be prime minister of Egypt at the right hand of the Pharaoh. Joseph provides bread to the whole world during this severe seven-year tribulation, this famine. The Gentile nations honor him, but as his brothers, when they first appear to him, uh, the first time they don't recognize him. Uh, when his brothers, who had earlier betrayed him and, and sold him, 
appear before him a second time, Joseph reveals himself to them and forgives them and provides for them and redeems them. Now, isn't that an inspiring story? What's the lesson of Joseph? Be like Joseph. Is that the lesson? You know, if people hurt you and stab you in the back and betray you and, and try to ruin your life, no matter what they do to you or how much they hurt you, love and forgive and bless them. Now, run along. Be like Joseph. <laughs> Isn't that inspiring? God save us from the story of Joseph. Who in the world could be like that? It's not inspiring. It's, it's crushing. Unless Yeshua is right. And here's what he says. He says, I'm the true and better Joseph. I was sold. Not into near death, but into real death. And I rose up, not just from slavery, but from death itself. And now I'm sitting at the right hand of, 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 of the king, of the father. And when the true and better Joseph sees us, the people who have turned their backs on him, the people who've lived as if he doesn't exist, the people who betrayed him and caused his death, he forgives us at infinite cost to himself. And to the degree that you see that, and to the degree that this, this moves you uh, and melts you and humbles you uh, and affirms you, to the degree that you see Yeshua as, as, as the true and better Joseph, that empowers you then to go out and be like Joseph. Here's another example. Esther. Here's a woman who gets the palace and power and money and status. But she learns her people are about to be destroyed. And in order to save them, she has to risk her own life. If she identifies with her people, she risks losing everything. Uh, her life, her status. But she does. And as a result, her people are saved. So, so be like Esther. Be courageous. No matter what it costs, do the right thing. Stand up for the truth, even if it costs you your job, even if it costs you money, even if it costs you your reputation, even if it costs you your life. Now, go out there, let nothing, nothing cow you, nothing stop you, be afraid of nothing. Now, run along and do it. Go, go be like Esther. God save us from the book of Esther, <laughs> unless there's a true and better Esther, someone who was in the real palace. The ultimate palace. Uh, uh, and, then, and, he, and, and, and who saw that the only way that we could be saved is as his ultimate Esther if he identified with his people. And so he came and he identified with us. Not, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. Not at the risk of the palace, but at the cost of the palace. And unless this thrills you, unless this becomes the basis of your life, that the Son of God loves me like that, Unless that changes your very self-image and you see that he loves you like that, unless this becomes the basis of your self-image, you won't have the security to be courageous like Esther without knowing that the eternal Son of God loves you like that. And the God of the universe delights in you. Unless you know that, where do you get your self-image from? You end up getting your self-image from your achievements or from your money or from your status. And so you won't jeopardize all those things if standing up for the truth is going to cost you that because that's all you've got for your self-image. But only if you see the true and better Esther, Yeshua, and how he's changed your life with his love 
Only then can you be like Esther. And as you see Yeshua as the ultimate Joseph, the ultimate Esther, the ultimate David, the ultimate Abraham, the ultimate Moses, the one who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. So when you say, Father, accept me for what you, because of what Yeshua has done, that's what gets you out of Egypt. Not on the basis of your works and obedience, but on the basis of sheer grace. And then you can be like Joseph. You can be like Esther out of gratitude. Until you see that the ultimate rock of Moses, Yeshua, was struck with a rod of God's justice to give you the real water of life. Until you see the ultimate Pesach lamb is Yeshua himself. The ultimate Pesach lamb who was slain so the angel of death would pass over you. Unless you see he's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, the ultimate korban, the ultimate offering. The Bible will just be a crushing burden to you. It will not be a joy to you. It will not be the way of entering into a love relationship with God. It will just bring despair. Now wait a minute, David. Didn't you say you give up your rights to uh, to live your own life? And you adjust to the authority of the will of the beloved. But didn't you also say, unless the other person does it back, then it just becomes exploitation. Isn't that what you said? Okay, so where is God adjusting to me? You want me to adjust my life to the word of God? Where is God adjusting to me? Don't you see? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Yeshua says, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go to this cosmic hell. Yeshua suffered this punishment for you that you and I deserved for everything we've done. But he said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. He adjusted his life to us in the most radical way possible. He adjusted his life to the fact that we needed to be redeemed. He let his will be crossed. And the ultimate way And he's not asking you to go to hell for him. He did that for you. He's asking you to go to heaven for him. And it means letting your will be crossed. And surrendering your life to him. Have that love relationship with him. Humble yourself to him and his word. Let the word of God Control your mind, your will, your emotions, just as Yeshua did. And you will have unspeakable joy. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Lord, thank you today for your word. Especially for the living word. Amen. The, the word made flesh, Yeshua. Lord, we honor your word as our ultimate authority. Because thereby we honor the Father and we honor the Son. By honoring the authority of the Bible, Lord, we honor your authority. Help us to submit, to our, submit every issue, Lord, in our life, every decision to the authority of your word. For we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord Yeshua, let every word of the Bible, especially your words, be my bread, my meat, my drink, my strength, my life. Lord, help me to conform and adjust my life to the authority of the scriptures in every detail of my life. And Lord, I confess that mere outward compliance is not the ultimate goal. Rather, you want my heart.
capture my heart. I give you my heart. My whole heart. I want to be close to you, not far from you. Lord, my prayer, my cry is to have an intimate love relationship with you. Intimacy with you, Yeshua, the lover of my soul. I don't want to just honor you with my lips, but I want my heart to be, to be knit to yours, Yeshua. I want to obey you out of the overflow of my love to please and delight the will of my beloved, you, Yeshua. You sacrificed your will for the sake of my salvation. Now, Lord, I in turn surrender my will to you. Lord Yeshua, capture my heart, I pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.